Hey, and welcome to the Imagers Podcast. My name is Joey, and I am the host of the show. On today's episode, we are going to be continuing part two of our conversation on biblical generosity. In today's episode, we are going to dive into what the New Testament has to say about the tithe, generosity, and what's expected of followers of Jesus. Now, if you're somebody who accidentally jumped onto this episode, or you're really interested in listening to this specific episode, I would encourage you to go back and listen to episode nine, where we talk about the tithing and the taxation on ancient Israel in the Old Testament, because it really lays some groundwork for today's episode. Also, just to forewarn you, we're actually going to be adding a third episode for this specific series. And what we're going to do is talk about what does it mean today to live a lifestyle of generosity, and what does it mean to think about the tithe when we think about the tithe. So with that said, I also want to thank all of my Patreon members for supporting the show and helping us pay for things like software and subscriptions and equipment. So thank you so much. If you are interested in becoming a Patreon member, I've linked it in the show notes below for as little as five bucks a month. You could support the show and for $5, honestly, it goes a long way. With that said, let's get into today's episode. In our previous episode, episode nine, we discussed the idea of the tithe, which is essentially a taxation. And in ancient Israel, it was Yahweh's way of establishing ancient Israel when they came out of Egypt as a nation. Now, we talked also about Abraham and Melchizedek and Moses and the tabernacle, and we broke down the different types of tithes and taxations on ancient Israel, which, by the way, amounted to around 23 to 24% every single year. We also discussed Malachi chapter 3, the infamous passage on testing God in our giving, and how it mostly relates to Israel's robbing of their neighbors. And we also discussed that tithing was not free will giving, but it was rather required taxation, which beckons the question, okay, so what does that mean for us today? But first, what we're going to do in this episode is we're going to break down what the New Testament writers, Jesus and Paul, all have to say about tithing and generosity. Okay, we're going to get into today's episode, and like I kind of prefaced in the last episode, um, instead of reacting to errors and abuse and bad theology, I think it's really important to note again that we need to build a theology and an ethic in order to be able to respond to some of the lies and falsehoods or narratives that are in the church regarding money and tithing. So this series really isn't aimed to to be a rebuttal or to expose where the church is or isn't, but it's really to help you kind of build a perspective, a theology, and an ethic for why money and generosity really matters uh, as a follower of Jesus. And so one of the questions we're going to start off with today is asking the question, what does the New Testament say about tithing? And what does Jesus say about tithing? We know he tithed, uh, but also what does Paul and the early church have to say about it? Um, because when you look at the Old Testament, we know that the tithe was a good thing. When we think about the tithe today, we know it's good to give to God. We know it's a great principle, but if we're honest, we just want more. Like somebody who invests into the S&P 500, by tithing, we believe that we really are going to get a return on our investment. So it's not so much that we want to give, 
It's that we want to give because we want to receive something in return. But when we look at Jesus and the New Testament authors, what they live and teach, they think that by giving, do we have to expect a return? Is that what we should be expecting? That God would bless us in return? Now, we know that's a real thing, um, but if we really carefully dive into which we are going to do today, and I forewarn you, it's going to be a lot. Um, It's mostly about the heart posture and the motive behind why we give and why we are generous. And a lot of people push back and say, well, you know, tithing is a great principle, and I think it is. It's a great principle. But if tithing will be the principle, we are going to talk about generosity as the standard. And the reason that we think tithing is a great principle most of the time is because we think it's a method that works, like tithing works. I've done it. It works. If you do it, it'll work for you too, almost like a you know pyramid scheme. <laughs> and so we're going to get into it, but you know, one of the things I wanted to share and just kind of like invite you into my journey on the idea of tithing and money and generosity is a testimony from Katie and I. We actually, when I started, when I started kind of struggling with some of the weekly tithe messages in the church, um, you know, I could only listen to Malachi 3, 16 so many times before I was like, I've heard 50 different commentaries on one verse and half of them contradict each other. <laughs> And it was just, it was just hard. It was a struggle. Um, and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to go on a journey and I'm going to learn what's Malachi talking about. Why do we talk about money every single week? I remember I was working in a ministry and I had this really, really great, great kind of like supervisor mentor. And he said, uh, you know, it's odd to me that the only subject we teach every single week in the American church is about money. He said, we don't, we don't teach every week about the cross, about salvation, about the resurrection, about the power of Jesus' blood, or, you know, the filling of the Holy Spirit. He says, no, 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 we don't, we don't talk about that every week, but we do make an aim to talk about money and giving every single week. I remember thinking, like, that was a really good, I mean, it was a strong word, but it was like a subtle rebuke, like, wow, we've really prioritized the idea of money. Like, we talk about it every single week. And so I kind of hit this wall in my life where I was like, I'm just really tired of hearing about it. Like, I'm going to go on this journey and I'm going to see what I can find. And the goal was not to find what I wanted to find or what I believed to be true, uh, because I think that kind of skews the journey. I really wanted to find out the truth. And my personality type, Enneagram 8, by the way, is somebody who is comfortable with acknowledging the truth, even if it means I've lived my life in error or in sort of like, you know, a lie. I want the truth at any cost, that is, and that's my personality. And so when I kind of like thought about this, I was like, okay, if I do go on this journey, there's a high percentage or there's a high chance that I've been wrong all along about what I feel in my heart or what I've discerned, and um, I'm just going to have to deal with that tension of listening to the tithe every week. But so basically it goes like this. So as I started learning about tithing, especially through school and Bible college, um, I recognize that we've fallen really short in the Western church with the idea of tithing and generosity. And so what I did is I thought about Malachi 3, and I thought about, you know what? He told the ancient Israelites, put me to the test by the way that you, you give. And I'm, by the way, this is not, I, I'm not an expert. I'm not, you know, encouraging anybody to follow in my footsteps whatsoever. I'm just simply inviting you into this episode specifically. So what I thought was, okay, if he had them test them, by generosity, I'm going to go one year without tithing 
just to see what happens. I just want to see what happens because I've always heard stories of people that, you know, I started tithing this year and, you know, my bank account tripled or <laughs> I got a Mercedes Benz or whatever, whatever the stories are, you know, I thought, you know what? I think God's so good that I'm going to go one year without giving to the church, without tithing to the church. And I want to see if this really is a biblical standard that if I withhold my generosity, specifically to the church, mind you, we were still giving money to people and friends that we felt like the Lord wanted us to give to, but I specifically withheld my tithe for an entire year um, while being at a church. And I just wanted to see what would happen. And what was pretty crazy is um, nothing happened. Um, I didn't lose my job. You know, none, I didn't lose anybody to sickness. You know, I didn't get into a car accident. We didn't have any problems with our health. Um, in fact, we ended up being in two different jobs that uh, were financially, you know, way better off than we were when we started this whole journey. And it really caught me off guard to recognize that, okay, wait a second. I have so many people around me that are tithing because they, one, I think they do love the Lord. Like benefit of the doubt, I think most people that are tithing do love the Lord. But there's also a high percentage of people in their hearts who are giving because they want more or they want something in return. And so I really started like that year kind of um, experiment of, okay, I'm not going to give out of compulsion like Paul you know, tells us to. I'm going to give according to ability, but I'm not going to give um, out of compulsion. I'm going to be a cheerful giver. And so what I did is I stopped tithing, and then I just let the Lord speak to me through the weeks and the seasons of that specific year to say, okay, what do you want me to do with my money, Lord? Like, who do you want us, you know, Katie and I, to give our money to? And I remember it was that year uh, that I did this that he actually spoke to Kate first and said to give your only car away. And it was a great car. It was paid off, and we were a family of four at the time. And it was still like a newer car, and we worked really hard to pay it off. We were on the whole Dave Ramsey plan. And now I'm just like going down a rabbit trail, but just bear with me. So it was that year that the Lord actually challenged us, I want you to give a car away. And it was always a desire of ours to like give our car away. Um, but it was also during the season of like we weren't tithing to the church whatsoever. Like we didn't give a dollar to any church. Um, but we were giving to the people within the church that we sensed that needed it. And by the end of that one year, we were more blessed than we've ever been, honestly. Um, and I can't imagine, you know, I couldn't imagine that being the scenario, if I'm honest. I thought it was definitely going to be like my life's going to become shambles and I'm going to lose money and my job because I'm not tithing. And in fact, it was quite the opposite. And so I, I opened that, you know, I opened this episode to say that um, this has been a journey for for us. We've actually tested this uh, and we've proven that, you know, I think that our idea of money and tithing and generosity is very sometimes skewed and smaller than we think. And the Lord has so much more and he's so bigger than what we've been taught. And it kind of reminds me of this. And then we're going to start getting into the New Testament a little bit. But Mark Twain, one time uh, commenting on an offering message at a local church that he visited, by the way, not a believer, um, he, he says, I was so sickened by the appeal of the length of the offering that I took my bill out of the plate, which I thought is so funny because how many times have we been in a service where <laughs> it's verbose and whoever's talking about money just keeps dragging it on and we hear about it every week. And I thought that was so fitting of like, that's what sent us on this journey for that for that whole year was like, we were just overhearing the same thing. We were overhearing these, these messages of 
what felt kind of like subtle manipulation. And like Mark Twain, you know, we didn't take our money out of the plate like he did, which I think is kind of funny. We we said, you know what? We're not going to put money in the plate. We're going to put it in the hands of people in the church to see what happens. And it was an incredible year. Honestly, it was it was so cool to see how the Lord moved. Now, with that, I say, again, I'm not giving you advice. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I think if if you're in a local church and the Lord has you there and you are being shepherded well and cared for and it's a safe space and and you love the people well, like you should be generous. However, that was our journey. And so with that being said, we are going to start talking about the tithe specifically in the New Testament. Okay, so the tithe in the New Testament. I want to make this point really clear because I think it's something that we really, really need to pay attention to. So when we look at the New Testament, we know that tithing existed. We know that the Jews and the Pharisees and the religious leaders and those living in Judea and around the time of Jesus continued to practice the tithe. Now, one thing that we sort of miss when we are reading the New Testament is we fail to realize that the New Testament prior to the resurrection is still the Old Testament because Jesus lived under the Mosaic law. So anything that we read about prior to his resurrection has to be read within the context of the Mosaic law, which means, you know, the law of the Old Testament. Now, sometimes people get really tripped up by that. Like, what are you trying to say, Joey? What I'm trying to say is that Jesus had to come as a man, as a Jewish man, fulfill the law in order to establish a new law. So for him to fulfill the law, he had to live under it and live it out entirely without sin in order so that when his, he dies and resurrect, a new law could be established for the new people of God. So again, when we're reading about Jesus's encounters with people in the New Testament, in our New Testament, we have to recognize that what Jesus was doing was still under the Mosaic law though his death and resurrection was going to introduce a brand new law. Now, I hope that makes sense. So the tithe, specifically, is only mentioned around four times in the New Testament. We have it recorded in Matthew 23, 23, where Jesus, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, says, you know, hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and these spices, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, which is justice and mercy and faithfulness. And Jesus even alludes to the fact that they're doing well by tithing. He said, these you ought to have done, but not without neglecting the others. Now, the Pharisees, for some of you that may not know, were very scrupulous about tithing. They were very strict about tithing. And it's stated, actually, one scholar says that the Pharisees would actually tithe again if they weren't certain that they tithed the correct amount beforehand. So imagine, you know, you... You're, you're, you're giving money to somebody to tie that to the temple. If they weren't a thousand percent confident that they gave their right amount, they would just do it again. And so it kind of, it's funny because it kind of shows you their heart posture for doing it. But Jesus actually, you know, supports the idea of the tithe. He tells him like, you, you ought to do these things, but don't do those at the cost of the, of the more important things, which is, you know, justice and mercy. So that's the first time it's mentioned in the New Testament, Matthew 23, 23. The next time Luke actually records um, in Luke 18, he's talking uh, essentially about um, the Pharisee and the tax collector story, where essentially, you know, two men go up to the temple to pray, the Pharisee and a tax collector, 
And the Pharisee standing by himself prays and says, you know, Lord, thank you. I'm not like everybody else um, who's like unjust and adulterer or even like this tax collector. You know, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Uh, and Jesus, you know, compares him, that Pharisee's prayer to this tax collector where the tax collector, you know, stands far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven and says, God, you know, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Um, and Jesus says, you know, uh, the tax collector went down justified rather than the other, which was the Pharisee. And in that in that sentence, it's, you know, Jesus is is, is showing us that, you know, the Pharisee, not only does he fast twice a week, but he never misses his tithes. So that's the second time we see tithes specifically in the New Testament in Luke 18, 12. Now, the third time we, we see it is in Hebrews 7, uh, verses 5 through 9. And I, I can read them for you really quickly. But essentially, what, what chapter 7 of Hebrews is really all about, it's about Melchizedek and the priestly order of Melchizedek and how Jesus um, was essentially a priest through the lineage of or the order specifically of Melchizedek forever, right? And in Hebrews seven five through nine, um, we'll just go ahead and read it for the sake of for the sake of discussion. It says this in verse five. It says, "And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham." Verse six. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid them through Abraham. Verse 10, For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if you go on to verse 12, so again, it's talking about the order of Melchizedek, but then it, in verse 11, it changes and it shifts to compare Jesus to Melchizedek, like the greater high priest, right? And in verse 12, it says this, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is a change in the law as well. Now, this is a very important point to make because like we just said a few minutes ago, Jesus comes to fulfill the Mosaic law. So when there is a change in the priesthood, and we know that there was a change of the priesthood, because now it's not just ancient Israel and the Jews, now all have been invited into the priesthood who call Jesus Lord, right? So if we know that there's a change in the priesthood, Hebrews alludes to the fact that the law changes as well, which is why I made that comment in the beginning that Jesus lived under a different law so he could introduce us to a new law. So again, where there's a change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law. So the question is, what do, what do these passages have in common? Well, for one, none of them have to do with tithing and Christianity. <laughs> and, I, and I laugh and I joke, but literally none of those verses that I just referenced to you, which are the only verses in all of the New Testament that allude to tithing or talk about tithing or even mention the word tithe, have anything to do with Christians and tithing. Because if we think about this, if tithing, some of us think of it as like this, you know, litmus test for discipleship, where it's basically like, you know, how do we know somebody's faithful to Jesus? Well, you know, are they giving money to the church every week? And so, and we, we kind of like succumb to that belief. Like if you, you, you know, you, if you're not giving money to the church every week, if you're not tithing, you must not like have an allegiance to Jesus. Like you're still, you know, Luther talked about the conversion of not only the heart, but of the wallet. And essentially, like, you know, money is important, but we have this idea that, like, 
if people aren't giving money to the church specifically in the way of tithe, they must not be doing good. But I just want to say this. If tithing was the litmus test for discipleship, the apostles and the first century Christians were utter failures. They were utter failures. Why? Because we don't find them tithing. Now, we know that tithing is biblical, and I just want to say this. It's just not Christian. What do I mean? We're going to just ask ourselves really quickly. Okay, so if the New Testament really doesn't talk about tithing outside of what we just shared, what does it say about money and generosity? This is where we really have to focus kind of our attention to the ministry of Jesus, but even more specifically, Paul. Now, we know Jesus talked about money about a quarter of the time that he ever talked, which is, you know, 25%, which is a lot. Um, but there's a few statements that actually Jesus makes in the New Testament that are very, very key um, that I want to look through. And one of them is Matthew chapter 6. Now, if you have your Bibles or you're just listening, I'm going to jump to Matthew chapter 6, uh, specifically in the ESV, and I'm going to read verses 19 through 24. Now, we know this as the very famous, you know, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, you know, where moth and rust destroy, etc. But I want to read this in context, and I feel like it might help some of you. Because if you're like me and you've been around the church or ministry for any amount of time, you have heard this talked about at least a handful of times as maybe like a call to action for purity or your focus on God, um, not being distracted, etc. Um but I don't think that's what Jesus is actually getting at. So let's read this real, real quick. Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Verse 23. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Verse 24, for nobody can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, for you cannot serve God in money. One thing that we, we miss within modern translations or just the English translation is a very specific word that Jesus refers to in verse 22. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now, verse 22 is sandwiched between 19 through 21 and 24. Now we know if we just read 19 through 21 and verse 24, we know that Jesus is talking about a heart, a heart posture towards money and treasure. But the in-between in verse 22 and 23, he talks about eyes. So you're thinking, okay, what, what does this have anything to do with money and treasure? Well, it has a lot to do with money and treasure. So the word healthy in verse 22, where if your eye is healthy, is the Greek word aplus. And basically, it's a figure of speech to say that the way that you see the world, right? So if your eye is healthy, if you have like a healthy perception or perspective of how you see the world, 
um, then your whole body will be full of light. Uh, now, healthy also refers to a sense of like generosity as well. So basically, what Jesus is saying is basically, you know, if your if your if if your eye is the lamp of your body, um, and your eye is healthy, it's generous. Uh, you will see life and experience life in a way like it's like if your whole body was full of light and like goodness, right? And so, what I would say is like if you are somebody who perceives life from a scarcity mindset, meaning that there's never going to be enough for everybody, you will not live in a way that is just full of light. You will, you'll live in a place of not literal darkness, but there will be a heaviness. There will be like, it's very clouded. There's no clarity. There's nothing to hope for. Uh, but if you live with the mindset of abundance, and that's how you see life, like there will always be enough to go around, it says that your whole body will be full of light. Like it, it, you will be blessed, in a, essentially. And for Jesus, what he's getting at here is um, generosity matters. Generosity has the ability to change your entire life. Because for Jesus, it was about freely giving because we freely received. I mean, if you remember in Matthew 10, when he sends out, you know, he's essentially sending out his disciples along, you know, along with 72 others. He tells them, he said, you know, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, you know, cast out demons, etc. He says, you received without payment. So give without payment. And that's really important to think about because I think sometimes we think about Jesus as like a really good teacher and like sage and rabbi. And he has like really good parables. And we love the way he sees life and the way he lived his life. Um, But if we're honest, I don't think we really take him seriously when he talks about things like this. Like, hey, when you go out and you share the gospel, just remember that when you're you're doing kingdom work, um, you received the kingdom without payment, so give it away without payment. Okay, now I know I forewarned you that it's going to be a lot. We're probably only about 30% of the way through this episode, so just stick with me. All right, so we discussed a few quick statements made by Jesus, but I want to talk about Jesus' ministry specifically. Now, we know that Jesus' ministry, according to the Gospels, tell us that his ministry was funded entirely by people who followed him, plain and simple. However, his entire ministry relied upon the hospitality and generosity of people, not their tithes. Now, this is very important to think about because if you remember from our last episode, the tithes were taxations upon the Israelites, um, and it was still a common practice in Jesus' day, but, but they were taxations to fund and support the temple and the Levites to take care of the poor, the orphan, the widow, as well as, you know, the Isra- the Israelites' yearly festivals or celebrations. So Jesus did not collect tithes for his ministry. And in fact, one scholar notes, and I thought this was really interesting, had Jesus collected tithes, he would have broken the law. Well, why? That seems severe. Well, because the tithe was not meant for those from the tribe of Judah, which Jesus, you know, came out of the lineage of the tribe of Judah, it was solely for the Levites, the tribe of Levi. So Jesus actually didn't collect tithes. And if he would have, he would have broken the law entirely. So that's just one kind of thing to note is that Jesus' ministry was funded by the free will, generosity, and hospitality of people who followed him or either you know were fond of him. But he never relied upon tithes, nor did he ever receive any tithes. Now, the people who he was able to live off of were, according to, stri- according to Scripture, sorry, Mostly women, 
We don't think about that. Women were the predominant providers for the ministry of Jesus. Luke 8 records it in verse 1 through 3. It says, Luke um, basically said, you know, soon soon afterward, Jesus went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and some also women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, uh, who was the wife of Herod's household manager, by the way, and Susanna, and many other who provided for them out of their means, basically out of their ability, what they had. So it's really interesting to know that Jesus never collected tithes. Um, He would never even ask for that. And instead, we actually never, ever find in the New Testament Jesus ever even asking for money for his ministry. Um, I mean, however, you know, he talked about money and he talked about taxation and he talked about Rome and the empire and, you know, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and God what belongs to God's. Um, but we never find Jesus asking for money. We never see Jesus even, you know, compelling people to, to, to try to give to, you know, his ministry fund or whatnot. Like they literally gave out of free will, out of the abundance of their heart, cheerfully, wholeheartedly, simply based on their ability to give to him, they did. And most of them were women, which is, I think, super cool to think about. So you might be asking at this point, okay, so if Jesus, so Jesus never asked people for money? No. In fact, in the first century and predating the first century, um, it was common practice that if you were a disciple of a rabbi in the name of honor, you would give resources to support and fund that rabbi's ministry or teaching. And so we see that kind of carry out into the life of Jesus, that he didn't have to ask for it because his disciples provided for him, for his ministry. Um, Now, I think we've done a farewell job, uh, or a fair enough job, talking about Jesus. We know that, um, again, just like a quick recap, we know that the New Testament mentions the tithe a few times, but it never mentions it in regards to being you know, a follower of Jesus or a Christian, it always refers to, you know, the law uh, and the priesthood. And we covered in Hebrews 7 that because of Jesus's death and resurrection, he fulfills the Mosaic law, and now he lives in a new law. That's why, in fact, you don't see anything about the tithe after Jesus's death and resurrection, because for the earliest Christians and the biblical authors post-resurrection, they recognize that they're living under a different law, so they never mention tithing again. Um, now, obviously, Hebrews mentions mentions it, but it only mentions it in the context of because it was an old priesthood. Now we have a new priesthood, which means there are new laws. So the next thing I want to do is I want to talk about Paul. Now, if, there, if there's anything that we can get and squeeze out of the ministry and letters of Paul, It's that Paul had a very high respect and conviction for money, generosity, and stewardship. In Acts 20, and again, if you have a Bible or, you know, you're in your car, that's fine. Or maybe you're laying in bed. Who knows what you're doing? Um, In Acts 20, Paul is writing sort of a farewell speech to the elders in uh, Ephesus, the Ephesian elders specifically. And he writes in verse 35, he, he, he's basically writing this, you know, heartfelt goodbye to them. You know, they're going to get this letter and they're going to realize like this is Paul's goodbye forever. And he writes to them in verse 35 of Acts 20. And he said, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, 
We must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, Paul quotes Jesus and he used the words blessed, which is the Greek word makarios, which is some scholars have a really hard time to kind of portray or convey what that word really means. It it really means like blessed is like, it's like a state, of, it's like a quality of life. It's not just that you have a nice house and you have a lot of money. It's like that feeling when, I don't, you know, sometimes I always envision it of like when I was, you know, in middle school and, you know, you come home and your parents are like, guess what we're doing tomorrow? We're going to Disneyland. And that euphoric feeling of like bliss comes over you where you're just like, this is the greatest moment of my life. Like I could live in this moment forever. The word makarios, like blessed, means that. It's like a state and quality of life that it, and Jesus says it's more blessed. Like your life is so much more better when you just give rather than receive from people. Now, that might be hard for us to kind of reconcile because we do live in a culture, if I'm honest, built on greed and commodity, the consumption, materialism, hurry, discontentment. But Jesus said that generosity is actually the key to a good life, to a life of freedom. And in fact, giving away results in what some have said to be the good life. So if you want to have a good life, you have to learn how to be generous with what you have. And that is way more than just money. Now, for Paul, I'll make this statement, and we we might circle back to it in a little bit. For Paul, money was never a trophy; it was a tool. Now, now this is worth pausing over because I want to I want to make this clear. When we think about Jesus, the apostles in the early church, they never treated their resources or their money as trophies. What do I mean by that? Well, if you think about the difference between a trophy and a tool. Um, they're different in their purpose, right? What what do you do with a trophy? Well, a trophy is a keepsake item. It it's something that you store as a way of you know, alluding to some type of accomplishment you've made or bringing attention to whatever kind of sacrifice you made, etc. But a tool is simply to help you to create something, to fix something, or to help with something. And so there's a difference in the way we approach money and the way that the the, the you know, the biblical authors approach money. So for Paul, money was not a trophy. It wasn't something that he, you know, collected, consumed, or, you know, built, built some kind of like weird shrine in his closet with all these, you know, accomplishments. It was a tool. It was something that he used to be able to, to, to further the gospel, his ministry, to create community, to fix problems, um, and to assist where needed, for example, which we'll hit on, which is like the poverty in Jerusalem and the early church, Um, And so we have to think about that. Like, we have to check our hearts sometimes and say, how do I approach money? What do I think about money? Or what do I think about when I think about money? Do I treat money like a trophy? Is it something that I consume and commoditize, like I keep to myself to kind of build, you know, this level of comfort and confidence of like, look what I have, look what I've accomplished? Or do we treat it like the earliest Christians as a tool to help further the lives and betterment of other people? as well as the kingdom of God and the gospel. So for Paul, money was a tool. 
but it was a tool he also worked really hard for. I mean, when we think about Paul, we think about somebody who's highly educated, super smart, but also, you know, made tense, which is, you know, it's not a slave job, but it, it's it's a very, you know, low end of the totem pole type of job. It, w- it was a job that you wouldn't, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to tell your parents and be proud of like the fact of like, you know, what do you want to do with your life? Well, I want to build tents. I want to be a tent maker. Um, it was, it was a skill. It was a trade job, but it wasn't something that Paul made a ton of money off of. And it definitely wasn't something he could boast in, right? He didn't start, he didn't start, you know, a, a fortune 500 company, et cetera. He didn't, he didn't start a new synagogue so people could follow him though. He was smart enough to do all of that. He simply just worked with tents. And so he works because he wants to have the tools and the means to further the gospel message, not further his business or further his, you know, legacy. It was simply a tool to advance the kingdom of God. Now, um, expounding upon this specific chapter of Acts 20, I really wanted to read through this because I feel like they hit on it beautifully. But the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible does a good job communicating this idea, talking about Paul's farewell. It states, um, Traveling philosophers and teachers in the Greco-Roman world often worked for a fee, exploiting their customers. Paul demonstrates the integrity of his ministry among the Ephesians by working to support himself. This does not mean, however, that the Christian workers should not be paid. At times, Paul did receive support from his churches, and both Jesus and Paul said that the worker deserves his wages. What Paul means here in Acts 20, writing to the Ephesian elders, is that leaders must be people of integrity and transparency. They must not only practice hard work, but also help the weak. And so what they're alluding to is the fact of when Paul says to the Ephesian elders that essentially, I showed you by working hard in order to help the weak. Because Jesus told us it's more blessed to give than to receive. What the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible does really well is saying that for Paul, he's not against people getting paid. What he is for is essentially working hard in order to help the weak, which is a huge uh, ethnic shift for us today, right? If you think about like, why do you work hard? Why do you go to a job every day? Like, why do you work so hard to save money? It's to better your life. It's to it's it's for the betterment of your life. Maybe comfort. Uh, maybe you, you know you want to take a you know two week vacation to France. I mean, who doesn't? But if you think about the majority and the motives of why we work for money, it's either to keep uh, a quality of life or a lifestyle or to better our life. And rarely is it ever to help the weak and to bring you know a sense of equality to those within the body. Uh, and for Paul, he's saying, hey, listen, like I worked hard as an example. Like I lived, I embodied what it meant to work hard in order to support those around me, which I think is fascinating to think about. Now, moving on from Paul's farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, um, when you get to the book of Corinthians, you know, um, those two separate letters, the first letter, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 9, Paul basically writes and hits on a topic of his apostleship. Basically, Paul's defending his apostleship from um, some people that came into the church and started doubting his ability to, to lead and you know question his validity and authenticity as an apostle. And in 1 Corinthians 9, which, which we're not going to get to the whole thing, but if you want to on your own time, I would really encourage you to read the in chapter. 
or sorry, the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 9, because Paul really makes this like incredible defense, uh, while at the same time, he, he not only defends himself and the validity of his apostleship, at the same time, he surrenders the rights that he would be able to use as an apostle to those in Corinth, right? Um, so he's on one hand defending himself against the false teachers who came into Corinth doubting Paul, and at the same time surrendering his rights as an apostle in sensitivity to those in Corinth, which is a really fascinating kind of like, you know, balance beam there. Um, and Paul, what what he does in this chapter, um, you know, chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, is he uses the example of his behavior while he was amongst them to argue his main point, which is that he has the right to lean into um, his freedom as an apostle, which basically is like to ask for material possession, right? It's it's like he could he could have asked them for certain things. However, he relinquishes such rights for the sake of the gospel. So what First Corinthians nine kind of function like functions like it's almost like this illustration for Paul to provide the proper relationship between what freedom and love looks like, right? Because you can be free but not loving, but you can't be loving and not free, right? And so Paul, what Paul's saying is like, I have the freedom as an apostle to ask people for material possession, i.e. money, clothing, whatever it may be, but out of love for those people, I refuse to do so. Why? Because I don't want the gospel to be hindered. Now, many of us don't know this, but because Paul was an apostle, he had the right to ask for financial and material support. And not only for himself, but scholars also say that if he had traveled with the wife, he could also ask for provisions from the believers in the early churches to also cover his you know, wife's livelihood or expenses. However, Paul was very careful when it came to his rights. Now, I want to just pause here and hit on this really, really, really quickly. A lot of us feel justified in our role as pastor, prophet, whatever it may be that God's called you to, whatever ministry he's, he's, you know, given you. A lot of us know that we have, um, we have rights. Okay. So it's like, Hey, I, I work at a church. I like, I have a right to, to be paid from the church. Right. Um, or like, Hey, I'm a traveling preacher. And so, you know, it's not bad for me to ask for money. Like, how, how do I travel if people don't give? And so 1 Corinthians 9 kind of functions like that. It's like, hey, we're doing this. Paul's like, hey, I, I'm doing this work. I'm an apostle. I have a right to, to ask from you, uh, but I refuse to do so because money is a hindrance to you receiving the gospel. Now, where do we get that idea? Like, where does Paul get the idea that the money could somehow be a hindrance to the gospel? One thing um, that we can look at really quickly just as I'm thinking about it, is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 8, where Paul's basically um, exposing the false apostles that came into Corinth after he left and started getting them to doubt Paul's, you know, um, authenticity and validity as, a, as an apostle. And uh, in verse 8, he says, um, or verse 7, he says this of 2 Corinthians 11, he said, did I commit a sin in humbling myself? so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order 
to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone. For the brothers who came from me, with me from Macedonia, supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Now, what Paul's saying here is he's saying like, hey, let me defend, you know, my my heart. Let me defend my character. Like when I came to you, did I ask you for money? Like, absolutely not. I didn't, I didn't want to be a burden to you. I gave you the gospel for free. And what Paul actually says, which is really crazy to think about in verse eight, he says that he robbed other churches by accepting material support from them in order that he could come and serve uh, the Corinthians. So Paul equates, now I want you to hear me out because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expound upon this in a moment. Paul equates borrowing money from other believers for the sake of the Corinthians as robbery. Like he says that, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And then he says, and when I was with you and I was in need, I didn't ask or burden any of you because I had people that came with me to supply my need. So, and then he says, you know, at the, at the end of verse nine, so I refrained and will continue to refrain from burdening you in any way. Like it's wild to think that um, Paul was so sensitive to the fact that he had the right to certain things, but he refused to play the card, you know? It's also important to know that Paul uses very specific rhetoric. So don't hear me out wrong. Paul is not considering that when you borrow, um, that borrowing at all times is somehow robbery. He's, he's building a case for the Corinthians to see that he's the type of apostle, unlike the false apostles, who comes in and doesn't ask from them or consume from them. He contributes. And so Paul, you know, Paul saying, you know, I solicited material support for the sake of of other people, right? The poor people in Jerusalem, which which will, you know, we can get to in a second. But the only time we actually really see Paul ever asking for money is to help for the sake of others, which were the poor Christians in Jerusalem. It was actually never to, um, you know, contribute to the comfort of his lifestyle. It was always for the sake of others. It was always him practicing justice by generosity. Um, and in fact, speaking of like generosity and partnership, in Philippians 4, Paul writes to the church in, in Philippi specifically about the provision of the Lord. He says, he says, you know what? I, I rejoice, guys, because you, you revived me in your concern for me. Basically, like Paul, um, Paul basically had needs. He, he, had, he had material needs. And the and the Christians in in, in Philippi um, provided for his needs. And in fact, he even says in verse eighteen of, of Philippians four, like, "You guys were so generous. I received full payment. Like, I am well supplied. I have more than enough." Um, and he actually he actually received from them. So we're we're not going to go like pendulum swing and say Paul was anti receiving money. He he actually wasn't. He received money from the Philippians because he knew their hearts were to be generous. Whereas in with the Corinthians, he's like, I don't want to take anything from you because of their hearts being intertwined with their lack of trust for him. So again, he defends himself by saying like, I, I have no need to ask for money from you and I, and I refuse to moving forward basically. So for all of those listening, I just want to say Paul was not anti-giving. He was anti-expectation which means that 
Paul wasn't constantly expecting from them to do certain things. He, he was hoping that they would do that. So he was hoping that they would be givers. He just was against the expectation that they would do it. Um, and so I think that's important to know that he wasn't anti-giving. He was anti-expectation when it came to material possessions. for Paul, accepting material support from people, and here's what I want to say really quickly, the reason why Paul is so cautious and careful when we read his letters about, you know, generosity of like, hey, don't give out of compulsion, don't give out of obligation, you know, God loves a cheerful giver, do according to your means or ability. The reason that he's sensitive to that is because if you think about Paul, like, he lived as a missionary, so if he were to come into a city and start expecting or accepting material support from the people, i.e. the Christians, um, especially, you know, in a city that he was brand new to, it, it's, it's, it's easy to assume that those people, because they don't know him or his motive, could easily, you know, falsely accuse him or, or say, you know, this guy's only coming because he wants something from us. He actually, he's coming as a missionary in the name of Christ, but really he, he, he's doing it for financial you know, gain. And Paul says, like, I, he says, I think that that would actually hinder the gospel, right? Like, for example, he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 6, he says, listen, my, my appeal to you doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive you. He says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak and not to please you, but to please God, who actually is the tester of our hearts. And he says this in verse 5, he says, for we never came with words of flattery. And as you know, with a pretext for greed, God is our witness. Nor did we ever seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles. So what he's saying to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 6, is that he he didn't he didn't want to make demands as an apostle because he didn't want to he didn't want them to think that he was attempting to deceive them or flatter them or have almost, you know, um, impurity in his heart and in his motive. So he just refused to ask for this. One scholar says, you know, in antiquity, many people mistrusted traveling sages as seeking others' money, sort of how you feel about, you know, modern itinerant speakers, you know, and if you feel that way, some of you aren't wrong. But I mean, sometimes when we hear about people traveling and taking offerings, sometimes our hearts are just like, why are you in, why did you come to this event? Like, is it just because you need money? Like, what do you, why are you here? Right. And so Paul's like very much aware that in the first century, (laughs) people were already having this weird feeling about traveling missionaries and sages. Like they know that people can make money doing it. And so, you know, their audience or their listeners were very skeptical of their motive. Right. And so this one scholar says in antiquity, many people mistrusted traveling missionaries and sages because they were known to seek others for money. However, other sages worked to counter the stereotype that sages were greedy, i.e. they worked for a living. If Paul was to depend upon the support of wealthy Corinthian Christians, he could easily be viewed as their client because patrons expected such dependent sages to please them 
However, Paul refused to give up this freedom. Now, it's important to note that um, when we read about Paul's defense of him, of himself in 1 Corinthians 9, one of the very strong statements he makes is that he basically says, I never asked anything from you, and I can boast in that. I can boast in the fact that I'm free from you because I never asked anything from you. And what this scholar is saying is essentially like Paul refused to be a hired hand to the wealthy Corinthians. He would rather not ask them for money because he doesn't want to be a prop in their control. He doesn't want to be somebody, like this scholar said, when people gave money to sages, they expected the sages to please them by way of teaching or entertainment, and Paul refuses to do it. Now, if you're like me, I'm thinking, holy moly, uh, this kind of speaks volumes to, to what we see in the church today, you know? Like, we literally, like, there were wealthy people in Corinth. Paul could have easily made a good living. However, he refuses to do so because he doesn't want them to question his motive. He doesn't want the gospel to not be received very well. And he also doesn't want to be a puppet where he just becomes, you know, uh, a patron to the client where basically his job is just to please the wealthy Corinthians. He's like, you know, I, I refuse in chapter nine. He says, I refuse to give up my boasting. Like none of you can rob me of this. And in fact, he actually says, I'd rather die than have anybody take away the ability that I have to say, I never, I never relied upon you, which I think is so awesome to think. But going back to what I was saying is, if you're like me, this kind of speaks volumes of what we see in the church today. You know, remember the statement Jesus makes of, uh, it's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now notice Jesus doesn't say it's impossible. He says it's hard. I would say that that is equally as true for most Western preachers, pastors, itinerants, people in full-time ministry. It's not that it's impossible for them to enter in. It's that it's hard. And the question is why? Well, the thing is, Paul saw living at the expenses of other people could hinder, one, their receptivity of the gospel, but also what they believed about Paul and his motive, right? And so Paul says, like, I would rather be free before you to teach you without any type of motive, without any requirements of contributions. I would rather live in this freedom before you. So what am I trying to say? I, I mean, just being around ministry enough, right? And, and you know, being a teaching pastor and whatnot and, and traveling all around the world and seeing, you know, people with money, et cetera, um, it's not that it's impossible for, for people in ministry to enter in the kingdom of God. It's that it's hard for people who live on the um, compensation of others to truly live free because most of their lives and roles within their church or ministry are really, you know, if we're honest, dependent upon not satisfying their audience, but in a sense, kind of satisfying their audience. Like I've been in so many services where, um, you know, the message is being conveyed in a way that's like the pastor so wants to be honest, um, but he can't because he realizes like, man, like if I teach this, we're going to, we're going to, people are going to leave. We might lose money. I might have to adjust my lifestyle. Or on the other hand, they, they know that money's not coming in. And so they like overemphasize their love for the, you know, church and their vision. And, um, or they like, you know, 
have somebody come in and give a really compelling offering message. And what, why? Because they need more money. And so the one that one last thing I want to say as we move on, because we're going to go to second Corinthians and then we're just about not really done. Actually, we probably still have another 30 minutes, but one thing I want to say is it's important to note that when we talk about Paul's apostleship and, and living off of other people's contributions, um, Paul does support the fact that laborers still deserve wages. It's just that it gets tricky. You know, the laborer deserves his wage. He does. It's it's true. Jesus says it, and so does Paul. And Paul actually quotes Jesus saying it. Um, but I think that we have to be careful on how we kind of... We have to tread lightly, I guess you could say. Um, and again, like I said earlier, um, Paul isn't anti-giving. He's, he's anti-expectation. Paul would rather work hard uh, day and night or all day long, and then, you know, whatever energy he has left and, and whatever margin in his schedule, he would rather work all day and then teach and lead and pastor people at night for free. So that way they could, you know, it wouldn't be a hindrance. Like he wanted people to freely receive, you know, his message for free. He didn't want people to feel like he had a motive with them. And I think that's really cool to think because if we, if we're honest, you know, we, we do a lot of ministry. We, we, we start a vision and we start, you know, a church and it might be like, oh, for the first two years, like, oh, we're going to keep things simple and our vision simple. But then, you know, the needs of the people start increasing or, or more people start coming and more people start giving. And so you start creating ministries to meet the needs of people. Um, and then you end up, you know, three, four, five years in running this machine, you know, called your local church or, or, or ministry. And, and it's like, man, we, we need to keep, we need people to keep giving. Like we, We've, we've grown so accustomed to this, you know, lifestyle or quality of life that we can't give that up. And so we need people just to keep giving. And so we expect them to give and we talk about it every week. And I think we mean well, and we, when we do, we want the kingdom of God to expand. We want to see people saved. We want to see people delivered, etc. cetera. Um, and we want to leave a legacy. We want to leave an impact. But I'm thinking like, man, if there's somebody outside of Jesus who left the greatest impact in the Christian faith, it's the Apostle Paul, and he worked for a living, and he never asked people for money. And when he did, it was to give to people that were in poverty. Uh, and that's what we're going to get into now in Second Corinthians. So when we get to Second Corinthians, we, we know that Paul's writing now his second letter. In Second Corinthians 8 and 9, I would argue provide the richest and most detailed teaching on giving in the entire New Testament. In uh, 2 Corinthians 8, we read about Paul taking a collection for the believers in Jerusalem. Now, also, the context for this specific portion of Paul's letters um, had to deal with the poverty of the early church. Um, and long story short, in AD 46, there was a huge food shortage in Judea, and there was a there was a big famine that kind of struck the land, and um, and it sent people into famine and poverty. And not to mention, I mean, people are still living under, you know, um, occupied Rome. So the taxation was crippling. And so you're you're not looking at an early church that was, you know, doing very well financially in the sense. And so 
in in Second Corinthians um, chapter eight, Paul actually is um, Paul wants to essentially take a collection for for those in Jerusalem who who are in poverty and in famine. And he's encouraging the the you know the wealthy Christians in Corinth to be generous in their giving, and so I just want to read really quickly verses seven through eight of Second Corinthians chapter eight. He says this, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all earnestness and in love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And what Paul's talking about is about giving. It's about generosity. Um, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Verse 8, And I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. Now, Paul was an apostle, again, which means that he he actually had the authority to not only ask, but command his readers and followers to give. Like he could command them to give, like, I want you to do this, you need to do this. And he wanted them to, that's why he writes with them, like, hey, I want you to excel in this. Uh, but in verse 8, that's the point of his letter is not that they have to, but that they should want to, right? He clarified, he clarifies, I, I'm not telling you that this is a command because they would have taken it as such. But actually what I want to do is I want to test your love to see if it's genuine. I want you to give willingly. Why? Because people that give willingly prove that they genuinely love other people. When people have to give, you could give and not love. But when you genuinely love people, you will never not give to people. And Paul talks about that, that that people that like are generous, that that's like an act of grace, which is very noteworthy to think about in verse 7. Now, if we continue moving on through through chapter 8, we'll go through 9 through 15. And we'll just, we'll just, yeah, let's just read it really quickly. So verse 9 says, um, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by you, his poverty, or so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Verse 10, and in this manner, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Verse 11, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, verse 14, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, what's going on here? So one, Paul's stressing that the testing of their love is in reference to their ability to give generously because devotion requires action. If we are going to be a people devoted to the Lord and devoted to one another, we will give to the Lord and we will give to others wholeheartedly without measure. But in verse 12, when Paul says, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Um, it needs a little attention because in the ESV, which I read, um, or sorry, verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness. The word fairness is not, there's a better translation. I'm using the ESV. Some of your translations might say fairness, uh, but the better translation would be equality. 
And so why does that matter? Well, if you think about equality in the New Testament, now I'm not talking about whatever political, you know, campaign agenda slogan you're we're thinking of, of you know, modern day equality, you know, people marching for equality, etc. What I'm thinking about is the, is the term and usage of equality in the New Testament. So what Paul is saying is, basically, I want there to be equality in the body. I, I, I want you guys to, to share enough with each other, um, not to the point where you go into poverty because you've given everything away, but if there's somebody that has less than you and you have more, I want you to give in a way that there's enough, that there's equality between you two. Now, the New Testament... So you're asking yourself, why does this matter? Because in the New Testament, I just want to focus on a few verses that talk about equality. So one would be John 5.18, Philippians 2.6. Jesus was equal with God. Okay, there's one point. Acts 11.17, it says, All Christians have received the same, which is the same word, same gift of the Spirit, meaning that there was equality when the Holy Spirit came upon every single Christian. He comes upon every single question. So all of us have equality in the Holy Spirit. Um, 2 Peter 1 verse 1 says that all Christians have faith that gives them the same status as the apostles, meaning that we have equality in regards to status as the apostles, as even Paul himself, according to 2 Peter 1 verse 1. And in Jesus' parable, if you remember this, in I believe it's Matthew 20, if you remember correctly, the parable of the workers, it was those who worked all day who ended up complaining about those who worked less. And do you want to know what their complaint was? Because when they were paid, they were all made equal. That was their, that was their fault. They thought that was an injustice to be, to be made equal with those who didn't work as hard, right? Um, and then Colossians 4, we'll, we'll move on from this, but in one of Paul's most radical moves, he he says that masters are to treat their slaves as equals. So what am I trying to say in verse 13? Is that Paul wants equality because equality has permeated the Christian life. Jesus was equal with God. He poured himself out to make us reconciled to God to now be equal to Jesus, right? We've all received the same measure of the Spirit, all of us have the same status as the apostles. Uh, masters are to treat their slaves as equals. So we see equality throughout the New Testament. But Paul is talking about equality in, a, in an economic stance here, okay? So when we look at 13 and 14, um, we have to ask ourselves, why does this matter so much to Paul? Well, for one, Paul was urging the Corinthians to donate to the poor in Jerusalem. And he actually uses Jesus as the grounds for benevolence. He says, like, Jesus became poor, so we might become rich. So guys, guess what? There's some poor people. So like Jesus, we need to become a little bit poor. Not poor in the sense of poverty, but poor in the sense of we need to empty ourselves a little bit in order that others might become better off, because that's what Jesus did for us, right? And he even he even explains, listen, I I I don't want anybody to be burdened when they're get when they're giving, right? He he says, like, I have no basically he's not gonna make them become poor, okay? but he wants to see them be able to give to those who are poor according to their means, which means if they don't have the ability to give, they don't have to give. That's why he says, this is not a command. This is not a command. And that's important to know, like generosity, um, according to Paul, is not a have to, it's a get to. It's not a command. It's it's a compelling thing that we should do because he says in verse eight that 
generosity is equally tied to our love for people. Like if you love somebody, you will give to them. For God so loved the world, he gave, right? Okay, I feel like we buried that. But Paul appeals to the Corinthians. He says in verse 14, um, specifically, he literally says, he says, your abundance at this present time should be able to supply their need. Meaning that Paul knew that there are some people that have enough. They are the ones that should be giving. He's not expecting the ones who don't have enough to give. He's expecting those who have an abundance in the present time to be able to supply to those who do not have an abundance in the present time. Um, but he's also realistic. He says, you give based upon your means or your ability. Like, don't, you know, don't sell your house and give it away if you don't need to. Like, you don't need to go into poverty, but hey, like, let's step up and help our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And noticeably, notice this in verse 15, he actually quotes the manna text from Exodus 16, verse 18, which essentially talks about when the ancient Israelites were gathering manna. Um, they were to gather what they needed, right? But you, they could not gather more than what they actually needed, okay? So what Paul is saying, like, in, in using Exodus 16, 18 as an example is that when the ancient Israelites were gathering manna, some sometimes actually needed more than other people. So the people that needed more were allowed to gather more, while those who didn't need didn't gather as much. And I mean, I think Acts 2 is a great, great kind of like parallel to this of like, hey, in Acts 2, there was not a needy person among them. Why? Because there was equality. Like they were sharing. They, they stepped up and said, hey, this person... Like if this person needs help, we're going to help. We're going to make sure that we we have equality in our community, if that makes sense. Now with this kind of fresh on our noggins, um, David Hornell explains that, you know, the aim for Paul of economic redistribution is not that Christians with something to give might impoverish themselves, meaning like go into a state of need or poverty, but that a state of equality might be obtained by all. So what he's saying is Paul isn't interested in like poverty essentially by giving, like giving so much that you never have enough. But actually the goal is equality, meaning that all the all the people of God are blessed. All the people of God have enough. They might not have more than they need, but all the people of God will always have what they need. And why? Because Paul sees God at, and through Jesus as the prototype, like God gives according to our needs. He doesn't always give us what we want, but he always provides our needs. And so for Paul, he's like, this is what the Christian conviction has to be economically, that we distribute our wealth and our means in order that everybody has what they need. Um, and, and, the, and the same goes, you know, even in our community, our house church that we lead, like when we are aware of a, of, of a need, we want to fill the need. Why? So that way that people aren't in need, because I'm not in need. And if I have enough, I'm going to help those in need, you know? So, um, and for Paul, just kind of wrapping up this, this portion of our, our topic, for Paul, the entire purpose of collecting money from other people, like Christians, was specifically for the achievement of equality for those of the household of the faith. So for Paul, his desire is that Christians, those who are uh, the household of the faith, would have every need met. And I feel that conviction today that that is exactly what he would want for us.
okay, we probably have 10 more minutes. So just want to thank you if you, if you've been with us, you know, or sorry, if you've been with me this long, um, this was probably one of our longer episodes, but I feel like there's so much to talk about that. I feel like I'm going through it way too fast, but you know, for the sake of brevity, we're going to continue. So in second Corinthians nine, so now we're moving one chapter ahead from verse eight, um, verses five through seven. Now I want you to think about this. There were no chapters and verses when Paul's writing his letter. So we have to think of second Corinthians eight and nine as kind of one continuous, um, flow of thought for Paul. So when Paul gets to what we call chapter nine, verses five and seven, we're just going to read this really quickly. Verse 5 says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse 7, For each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Um, now, again, this is one flow of thought. So basically what happens is, what or what happened was the believers in Corinth made a promise to Paul that they were going to give that they were going to they were going to raise funds to give to Paul and Paul is now collecting on their on their word you know but it's important to know that he he sent some people ahead of him so they could pick up the gift for him right um, because that's what they promised to do even though they promised to give i want you to notice the conviction and the purity and the conscience that Paul lives in even though they promised to give to Paul Paul still says i don't want you to give as an exaction, which in, which in Greek it means I don't want you to give so that you expect something in return. I want you to give willingly. I think that is so important to note that even though they promised to be a blessing to Paul, specifically for him to bring that money to the poor in Jerusalem, the poor Christians. That remember, it's not for Paul; it's for the hurting brothers and sisters in the church in the church in Jerusalem. Even though the Corinthians promised, Paul still says, look, I want you guys to give this because you want to give it. Please do not give it if you're expecting something in return, which is a huge exposing thing for us today. Like we give out of exaction. Like we we really do give because a lot of times we do expect something in return. And Paul's saying, if that is the heart, I don't want you to give. Like I would rather you give willingly and, and carelessly in the sense of like not expecting anything in return than to give to the poor in Jerusalem because you want God to bless you. The Greek word for exaction in verse um, five is the word uh, pleonexia, and it means literally like somebody who gives with an expectation to either receive or they give because they they want more. And I've thought like, man, that's that's most of the tithe messages we hear a lot today. Like, hey, if you give, you'll receive because we know... You know, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. and uh, But if you, you know, sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. But Paul's like, no, 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 no. When you give, it doesn't matter what you get in return. And if you're giving because you want more, don't give. I want you to give willingly, which is so beautiful. I think that that's just such a high standard for all of us. But for Paul, 
His concern is that cheerful giving is the evidence of God's grace. Which, why? Because it allows the cheerful giver to receive more. God loves a cheerful giver because it's the cheerful giver that God will give more to. Why? Because that person will give more away. Like, the cheerful giver is the greatest blessing, so God will continue to bless them. Now, if we could summarize what we've been talking about in Paul's letters in, let's say, five points, they would be these, right? Like, I'm not really a three-point person, but... I can confidently say we can summarize a few of the characteristics of genuine Christian stewardship according to Paul as five things. One, we would say that Christian generosity is voluntary. It's not enforced. It is generous. It's not frugal or stingy. It's enthusiastic, but it's not grudging. It's deliberate. It's not haphazard. And it is sensible. It is not reckless. I don't want to go through that again. So if you want to just rewind that for a few seconds because I want to move forward. So this might beckon the question for some of you, but like, what about all that talk about the worker deserves his wages, right? Like what, didn't Paul say that? Didn't Jesus say that? Like, don't, don't, don't we hear about like, basically Paul's like, you know, um, you know, those who labor in the word are considered worthy of double honor, especially those who, you know, kind of labor in preaching and teaching and, and what, and what about all that? You know, well, we know in first Timothy five, Paul writing to Timothy as a young pastor, um, in 1 Timothy 5, he actually writes to Timothy, who is a pastor in Ephesus, about the elders of the Ephesian church. And in verse 17 through 18, writing uh, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, he actually states, he says this, he says, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, this is not necessarily about... Now, it, it's hard because the term overseer, pastor, and elder is very kind of like, not convoluted, but it, it's basically borrowed a lot. Like there's no like... It's hard to say what the difference between an elder, a pastor, and an overseer is because it's used so... It, it's so intermixed and intertwined in its usage throughout the New Testament. But basically, what Paul says is like they're worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and teaching. The double honor has actually nothing to do with money. It's just that they respect and honor the people in their role, right? So when we say like, well, you know, those who teach and labor in the word and preach, they're worthy of double honor. But Paul wasn't talking about financially. He was saying that you should respect those people for their positions because they're overseers. Like they're watchers over people's souls. And they were the heads of the church. Some of you might not know that. Like pastors were were not what they are today, right? In the fir- in the first century, in the early church, um, teachers and preachers were, weren't really like, I mean, teachers were a thing, but preaching and teaching was essentially um, a role that an elder would hold. And they were like the overseer of a flock. And there were multiple elders. Like there, um, there was a group of them that would work together to oversee the church. So when Paul's writing to Timothy, like, hey, make sure you really honor these people, he wasn't saying like, hey, pay them well. He was just saying you... Re- like let the elders be respected and they should be considered worthy of double honor, meaning that like you should be even more honoring over them because of their role. Now, does that, could that include money? Yes, but that it, that's often been used as kind of a ploy or a tactic to say like, you know, if I preach the word or I teach the word, like you should, I, I'm worthy of double honor, meaning that you should give me a few more bucks, you know, but that's actually not what Paul's trying to say. Now, I digress for the sake of time, but Acts 2, it's it's just worth mentioning that Acts 2 
serves as probably the greatest prototype for generosity. We see that people had no needs amongst themselves. Why? Because they practiced equality economically. They gave to one another without measure, just based according to their need. Like what was the need? They met the need. And so you see this kind of universal like equality within the early church financially. Now I want to I want to get back to the idea of tithing. I'm going to read a few quotes and then we're actually going to land the plane because next episode we're actually going to try to bring it up to speed of what does it mean for us today. Okay, so we're moving on from Paul. We're going we're gonna to go, you know, another 30, 40 years, maybe even 50. Um, and we're going to read really quickly about what some of the early church fathers um, and really prominent key figures in the early church, even through up to Luther, thought about tithing. Now, Justin the Martyr, who lived, you know, around 100 to 165 AD, speaking of the tithe, says, says this. He says, we... Uh, being Christians, we who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring what we have into a common stock and we share it with everybody in need. It's really interesting because uh, what Justin uh, the martyr is saying here is he said, hey, whatever wealth and possession we have, we bring it we bring it into a common stock um, for the purposes of those who have a need. Not meaning that we we bring everything we own and we neglect our need, but the fact is, whatever we do have, if there's a need, we all bring it together into a common kind of stockpile, and, and we just share it with everybody who has a need. And I think that what Justin kind of gives us a picture of is that whereas people who used to, you know, he says, we who valued above all things the acquisition of wealth and possessions now bring those into a common stock and share Meaning, he's saying, like, we used to value the hoarding of money and possessions, but because of, like, this new Christ-centered posture, we actually take the thing we used to hoard and we give it freely to each other, which I think is beautiful. Now, um, Irenaeus, the, the Greek bishop in the second century, says that he actually makes a statement. He says, speaking of the tithe, he says, the Jews were constrained to a regular payment of tithes. However, Christians who have a liberty assign all of their possessions to the Lord giving freely, not the lesser portions of their property, since they have the hope of greater things. What's he saying? What he's saying is that the Jews were constrained because they had to give taxes. But Christians are not constrained because we have the liberty to give whatever we want. In, in Irenaeus' economy, he sees the tithe as a constraint, as a, as a control thing or like kind of like a lid placed upon the Israelites. Whereas in his perspective, the economy of the Christian, we're free from the lid, we're free from the constraints because now we can give cheerfully and above and beyond the tithe. He says this, he says, the Christians have liberty to not give the lesser portion, meaning the 10%. Basically, we, we can give way more because all that we have is the Lord's. Uh, Clement of Alexandria um, lived around 150 to 250 AD, speaking of the tithes, um, says the tithes of the fruits and the flocks taught both piety, which means like real religious practice, towards the deity and not to covenantly grasp everything. Instead, 
one should share gifts of kindness with one's neighbors. For it was from these, I reckon, and from the first fruits that the priests were maintained. Basically, what's interesting to note is that uh, Clement addresses the tithe as an Old Testament principle being taught kind of in retrospect. He's not he's not advocating the ongoing practice. What he's saying is like the tithe was a tool to teach the Israelites kindness, right? But what he's saying is like, well, kindness that and generosity should be the trait that Christians should now exemplify. Like we don't we don't need the law to teach us to be generous and kind. Christ is that example. He is that law. In fact, we actually don't even find anywhere in church, church history until about the third century any mention of clergymen actually being financially supported by Christians. Not until the third century. Uh, Cyprian of Carthage uh, was one of the first people to kind of introduce this idea that uh, clergy should be supported by kind of a tithe from um, their congregants. Because in his in his defense, he said, well, the Levites were supported by the tithe. However, now I want you to th- think about this. In the third century, when he brings this up, like, hey, we need to support the clergy because the Levites were supported, it was never picked up, supported, or ever echoed or taught by the early church in the third century. So he was like really the first one to kind of promote that. Like, hey, we should tithe to the people that are teaching us the word, and we should like, you know honor the clergy by like paying them to do this. Like nobody picked up on it. They like nobody supported it because by the third century, the early Christians are still realizing like the Levitical system has been abolished. Like we're all Levites and priests. And so nobody picked up that teaching. And you know, like Hebrews seven, like everybody who calls upon the Lord now and who's a loyal, loving covenant, faithful partner of God is a priest. And so thinking about that, like that's third century, right? So we're thinking like, you know, three to 480. But prior to Cyprian of Carthage, I just want to make this, this note. No other Christian writer, thinker, theologian ever advocated for tithing or ever suggested that it should be a thing. It actually wasn't until the fourth century, about 300 years after Jesus, that some people began talking and advocating for tithing but it wasn't really supported at all. Like, it was never the norm. I mean, Augustine argued that tithing should be a thing, but he argued for it. He, he never presented it as, like, a norm, okay? Because he, he knew, in fact, that the idea to tithe was actually not the historic position of the church. Like, the church actually never supported tithing. But the notion, so you might be like, okay, well, how the heck do we get here today? We're going to talk a little bit at that in our next episode, but the notion that Christians ought to tithe actually didn't gain any any traction until around the 8th century. So you're thinking for around 750 years, the early church, the idea of tithing and required giving for Christians was completely non-existent. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to episode 10. Uh, We're excited about the next episode. Again, we will be releasing our third part in this series on biblical generosity. Essentially, what does it mean for us today when dealing with the tithe and generosity? And and what do we do now, right? And so we're going to be going through that on our next episode. But thank you so much for tuning in. Again, thank you to all my Patreon members. Uh, Again, for for as little as five bucks a month, you could support the show. And it does go a, a longer way than you think it does and so i've linked it in the show notes below you can become a patreon member today but thank you guys so much and we'll see you on episode 11